Well, I was going to say uh, be seated, <laughs> but you, you can be seated, but you probably already are. So welcome. Just so glad you guys are with us. Uh, grace and peace to you all. Just love you guys so much. We're going to take some time today just to jump in and continue our series through the letter of Galatians. And thanks for joining us on Zoom in real time. Those of you that are joining us, I know these are unique time. Well, they're not really unique times. What am I? I'm kidding myself. It's been two years, but thanks for making the effort uh, because I just believe and we believe that the, the rhythm of gathering is such an important piece. And so we felt the last few weeks like this is the best way to kind of engage together in this moment while we can't have our building. With that said, we're excited about a couple things. First of all, one, uh, our winter uh, our winter spiritual practice right now is something called Lectio Divina, which is spiritual reading. And you may have noticed on all our social outlets that we are actually giving you a Lecto Divina passage each and every single day. Um, basically, there's five moving parts to Lectio Divina. You can go to mypraxis.church slash spiritual discipline to see these things. But instead of reading the Bible for information or for Bible study, it takes the word of God and uh, this type of reading is more shaped around uh, spiritual reading and just encountering God through the text. And so it's in five parts. One is preparing yourself, preparation. Two is reading the text aloud slowly and just reading the text. Uh, The third piece in this is reflecting. So you actually go back and you slowly read it again and ask questions like, what do I need to know or be? What do I need to do in light of this text? What does it mean for my life and reflection? Then after that second reading and reflection, there's a time of response where we talk to God about our experience. And then the fifth part in Lectio Divina is just rest. So pausing to sit in God's presence, um, instead of kind of fleeing from the moment, sometimes it's easy just to read our Bibles and move on. There's actually a rest in sitting in God's presence. And so maybe you've practiced this before. I have practiced Lectio Lectio Divina in groups before, and it's been a wonderful experience in my life. And so this is something we want to encourage you in. And all the details are at mypraxis.church slash spiritual dash practice. And you can find everything there, including the reading plan which is great. Um, excited about the next two weeks. Obviously, the government here has given uh, a timeline as far as when things are going to loosen as far as lockdowns. So here's the plan, brothers and sisters. This is our last week on Zoom, and thanks for joining in with us. Next week, our plan is to get together, if you're comfortable, in Praxis communities. Um, We're not going to be at Goodwill next week um, because it's kind of one day before things loosen up. But we are encouraging you. We have this hybrid vision and uh, the thought is, is, and the hope is for us moving forward is that the first Sunday of every month, we would be in communities and homes together and there would be something online that would lead and guide our communities. And I know some communities have been meeting together uh, in unique spaces, some on Zoom. Uh, Others have been meeting outside trying to find unique ways to to meet together. But the plan is if you're comfortable and your community is comfortable next Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we're going to gather together in Praxis communities. If you're not comfortable with that, maybe someone to meet in Zoom, however you want to approach it, we're going to leave it in your hands. But as always, there's going to be a live stream at 10 a.m. with uh, our series in Galatians and everything that you can engage if you're uncomfortable with that. Some groups may want to meet on Zoom next week uh, and talk about some of the things we're going to talk about in the content. But any way you want to approach that, the plan next week is we'll be online on Facebook, 
and YouTube or in your communities together. And so basically what we're doing is we're bumping that up a week instead of the first week of February because we haven't been able to be together next week in Praxis Communities. And then in two weeks, February the 6th, our plan is to be back together. We'll have more details. The hope is to be back at Goodwill. We'll have more details for you as we kind of get back into the swing of things after this most recent lockdown. So again, next week in Praxis Communities, if you need to get connected to a community or would like to be involved with a community, please let us know. All you have to do is go to mypraxis.church slash get involved, sign, sign the form there. We'll reach out to you and get you connected. And those of you that are involved in communities, you can cultivate, again, this any way you want, any way that you feel most comfortable kind of as we move forward. And it's going to be a great time together. With that said, uh, man, we just want to create a little bit of time here. Uh, again, discipleship is not just coming and kind of watching somebody do something or a few people do stuff. Um, we very much want to create a space for us to connect. And so today's text is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. What we're going to do is take 10 minutes, break you down into groups for a couple minutes, give you an opportunity to, to do this radical subversive thing. Uh, we're going to give you opportunity to say hello to each other in church. Who would have thought that this turning in towards each other posture is actually like the Jesus way? So we want you to do that. Say hello. Um, there's going to be somebody in there. Maybe uh, one of you can read the text, uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. And then we're just going to take two minutes. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's fine. But we're going to wrestle through one little question over the next 10 minutes. What is the gospel? Take a couple minutes. Cam's going to send us to these groups. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Let's take a few minutes and we'll be back in 10 minutes and we're going to wrestle through this together. Go ahead, Cam, send us away. All right, we're back. Sweet. Good to see everybody. Yeah, we just want to give some space just to wrestle through this, talk through this, um, obviously as well to say hello, which is a big part of, um, you know, being the church and an opportunity just to give you yeah, just give you an opportunity to say hello, which is great. Um, you know, I know that's quick. I know that's a quick kind of reading of the text today. Uh, we're going to jump right in, actually. We're going to jump into this. I thought David did, uh, David Harvey last week did such a great job kind of getting us going in helping us understand this letter, the context. If you have not listened or watched that teaching, I would go back and just give it a listen um, from last week because it really helps lay the context for us as far as some of the things that are going on. And what's really unique is uh, what, and what I appreciated about what David said is how Paul starts this letter is actually a little different in comparison to how he opens his other letters, but more specifically kind of in the Greco-Roman context, it's a little different in how many Greco-Roman letters would open up. As David said last week, oftentimes there was like this intro kind of introducing who you are and then kind of a level and type of thankfulness to the people that you're writing to. And the one thing about Galatians is that Paul is not, not overly thankful. There's not a lot of thanksgiving there early on in the letter like some of his other ones. And partly because he ultimately believes that the gospel is at threat. There is no, there is no thankfulness. And so you'll notice as you read that, even right away, he begins to almost like argue, argue about who he is, kind of the a, a spiritual authority that he has, and then kind of gets right into it. 
And again, Paul's coming from this posture that the gospel is at threat. Just listen to his words again. I know you just read it, but look at verse six with me again. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And you're turning, and listen to what he says, you guys are all turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And then he goes on, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, it's pretty clear here. I mean, even in the translation in English, Paul is upset with these new Jesus followers in modern day Turkey, Galatia, that area. He's upset with them. And again, most of these are Gentile people, non-Jewish people. He's upset with them because they are deserting the gospel. Now, foundationally, I think probably a good place to start then with this in mind is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? This is why we wanted you to kind of reflect and talk a little bit, because I think it's pretty easy kind of in our Western moment, shaped by the, again, the Enlightenment, shaped by the Protestant Reformation, to have a very whittled down idea of the gospel. The the word gospel in the first century in the Greek language was this word euangelion, and it simply meant good news. Good news. Anytime a king or authority had good news to bring to a kingdom or place or space, Caesar would come to cities and villages with the empire and he would have this good news. So it was a thing in the first century. And yet, Uh, I've noticed, and not to pick on like kind of a reformed way of looking at things, but I've noticed this shift that for many of us in our context, maybe because of the, the environment we grew up in, or maybe because of our Protestant roots, we've whittled down the gospel to Jesus died for my sins. And wow, brothers and sisters, that is absolutely true. And I would argue the center of the gospel we have to be careful not to just whittle it down to that. Actually, the gospel is more full, and, 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 and though it's beautiful that Jesus died for our sins, obviously, there's a fullness to this idea of the gospel that sometimes we miss. I've been really shaped in our community. You've heard some of this before, but I've been really shaped by a guy named Scott McKnight and another theologian, New Testament theologian, his name is Matthew Bates, And they would just argue that the gospel is this great story of Jesus. And yes, Jesus died for my sins is part of it. I love what Matthew, but it's it's almost bigger than that in the sense of like the all-encompassing idea of the gospel. Matthew Bates writes this. He kind of breaks it down into eight different points. He says this, that the gospel, according to the scriptures, is that Jesus the King, one, preexisted with the Father, So the gospel starts with Jesus pre-existing with the Father. Two, that God took on human flesh, fulfilling his promises to David. That three, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That four, he was buried. That five, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That six, Jesus appeared to man. That seven, not only did he appear to man, but that he is seated in authority at the right hand of God as Lord. And then eight, Jesus will come and judge. And I love this picture of the gospel because it's not just about that little center point piece that Jesus died for our sins, but the gospel is this story of Jesus and primarily pushing us to the idea that Jesus is Lord. That everything that, hard to believe, everything that we read in the gospels is the gospel because that's why they're called the gospels. 
And I think we need to keep this before us because I believe this is what Paul is talking about. The story of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, is the gospel, that the gospels is the gospel. And so this is what Paul, I believe, is saying the church is abandoning. As these new Jesus followers are coming to faith and allegiance in Jesus, one of the things that Paul is tripping out, he is losing his mind over, is this reality that they are abandoning this beautiful news that Jesus is king. Now, to understand, hopefully you're tracking with me, to understand what is happening here, we have to drill down on verse 7. You already read it. Verse 7 says this, Evidently, Paul says, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so Paul here is using language around this influence within the church that's trying to pervert the gospel. Now, before we move any farther, and before we kind of talk about something that I think is really important in light of what Paul is doing here, one thing we have to do is we have to look at the difference between good works. This is so important. We have to look at the difference between good works and works of the law. Because there's a difference, right? So the Protestant Reformation, if you go kind of rewind 500 years, the Protestant Reformation pushed back, if you know, against a lot of the injustice that was going on in the Catholic Church at that moment in history. And let's be honest, this is actually a good thing. Because if you know that Catholic Church is like selling places in purgatory and all these indulgences that are kind of going on within the Catholic Church, lots of abuses and kind of power abuses and obviously the way of Jesus was being very much muddied, if that's even a word, right? Like there's just so much going on that the Reformation was very much necessary. But with the Reformation, and you probably feel this a little if you grew up in a Protestant church, with this often came a lot of skepticism about works, right? A lot of us maybe have uh, backgrounds and experiences where works was pitted against faith. Why? Because we've always been told you're saved by grace through faith. And while that's absolutely true, for some reason along the way, works like good works were pitted against faith. And I I can, well, I can't fully feel the tension, but I imagine there's some tension here for some of us because some of you are probably thinking because of your background and the way that you've been shaped, doesn't the Bible actually speak of works negatively, right? Because you've been shaped by a Protestant culture. Um, It's fascinating because I think one of the things we need to do, again, is really distinguish between good works and works of the law. And that will give us a framework for how we view Galatians and make make it applicable and understandable for us. The reality is, is that every time a biblical writer in the New Testament talks about being saved by faith, apart from works, which they do, they almost immediately follow this up with the necessity and importance of good works in those who have faith, 
right? So we've done, what we've done is we've pitted good works against faith because Paul says we're not saved by what we do, but because of faith or allegiance in Jesus. And by the way, that word faith is the word pistis, right? Um, We've looked at this word a bit in the history of our community. This word pistis or faith is not a mental ascent. It's not just believing in our heads. The word literally means allegiance or loyalty. So there's connotation with this word that there is a response and reaction. The problem is a lot of people will say, well, you don't have to, it's not about what we do, right? It's about about faith. I know many Reformed friends that it's, they would even come to the position where God gives us faith. There's nothing we can do. And yet the call towards faith is repentance. And that's ultimately something we do. And so we've got to be careful that we kind of pin not only works against faith, but even doing things against faith. That's not, that is not the posture of the Bible. Um, you, you, you see this even in Ephesians 2, where it's like the classic faith passage where Paul says, it isn't, ba- uh, uh, it isn't on the basis of uh, works, so no one is able to boast, but this is an explanation. And then he goes on, listen, God has made us who we are. God has created us in King Jesus for the good works that he prepared ahead of time as the road we must travel. And so even there in the great, you're saved by faith or you're saved by allegiance passage, Right away, one verse later, Paul is talking about good works. And I just want to I wanna bridge this at the beginning because I think it's important that we don't get caught in the trap that we pin good works against faith. And I, I, I see and I feel this a lot in the church at times, especially when we come from a pro- Protestant bent. I think I've shared this before. Uh, Heather and I have friends in the States and they do great work. Uh, their church does a great work in a rescue mission in the States. Just wonderful work helping and serving people from the margins and the poor in their city. And another pastor in the city saw what they were doing, got up one Sunday, went on a rant, and was basically accusing them and accusing their good works as an abomination before God, right? Got up, was warning his people, we got to be careful about these good works because it's not about what we do. And I thought, whoop, there it is, my friends. There, again, is just a posture of being so shaped by kind of this Protestant way of thinking that we've pitted good works against faith. And I'm just here to lay a foundation for us at the beginning that this is not how the Bible approaches this. Faith, pistis, again, allegiance or loyalty is not opposed to good works. I just think of like the life that God calls us into, a life of faith perpetuates and calls on good work and justice work and just this life that God calls us into doing good with our lives. So now that we got that settled, because I think that's important, we also have to look at when Paul talks about sometimes it feels like when he talks about works negatively. When works is spoken of negatively in the New Testament, what it's speaking of is what we're going to deal with here in a couple minutes. It's speaking of works of the Torah or works of the law, which is deeply rooted and and is referred to things from the Torah that were Jewish identity markers, right? So if you know the story of how this thing unfolds, God calls Abraham out and this people and there's a law around them, the Mosaic law that leads and guides them in particular practices that separate them and kind of make them unique from the people around them. 
And so when Paul speaks of works negatively in the New Testament, and we're going to get a glimpse of this here in Galatians, we're actually going to not just get a glimpse, we're going to see it over and over. When Paul is talking about the negative things or or alluding to these negative things, he's talking about Jewish identity markers, not good works, not doing good, not justice work or loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Jewish identity markers, things like kosher eating, which was uh, a staple, obviously, in the Jewish community, and Sabbath, which is a wonderful practice, by the way, but was very much something that led Israel as part of their law. And this thing that seems to keep coming up over and over, this thing, circumcision. And if you don't know what that is, just ask your mom or dad or whatever, right? Um, It's funny. Every time this comes up, Heather's always like, why the circumcision piece, right? And I know I've said that to you, but it's because it's actually a big piece of some of the things that are going on in the community here because you get to, you begin to see these were Jewish identity markers. And this is what Paul is pushing at as things that could be negative. So the question is, what, okay, with that in mind, what is happening here in Galatia? Well, it's pretty simple. I, th- I think it's pretty simple. There are these Jewish Christians, we could call them Judaizers, who were basically insisting that these Gentile Christians in Galatia, so these people who weren't Jewish but were Christians, all of these people are Christians, these Jewish Christians were insisting that the Gentile Christians should follow kind of the works of the law, the Mosaic law, and in particular must follow the practice or I don't even know what you call it, like entering into circumcision as a way not only to be Jewish, but to follow Jesus. Ultimately, and this is what the letter really is dealing with. And what we're going to learn is that even really like apostles, like Peter, like a guy who was walking and talking and living with Jesus was actually convinced that the, that joining kind of this together, joining kind of the Jewish ideas along with Christianity made somebody Christian. So sure, Jesus rose, you know, died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. But ultimately, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be circumcised. Again, it sounds funny to us a couple millennia later, but circumcision was a real identity marker for the Jewish community in something that identified them as the people of God. And now, and let's be honest, this is pretty much, this is very much a burden. They are putting this burden on the Gentile Christians in Galatia. Um, I always joke, imagine like the new person's class where you're like giving out, you know, the vision of your church and what we're all about. And at the end, you've got to be circumcised. That is a bad, that's a bad day if you're following me, right? And so this is, this friends is why there is no thankfulness early on in Paul's language. Paul in our, in our home would say, Paul is losing his poop. And basically says to this community that what they're doing is they are turning towards another gospel. You know, the eight markers that I talked about of the story of Jesus all the way from pre-existing with God the Father, all the way to Jesus ruling and reigning and sitting in authority at the right hand of God. You know, that gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God breaking into the course of human history, you know, the teachings of Jesus, his death, his burial, resurrection, you know, that good news, they are abandoning that gospel for this way of the Judaizers where they're putting on Gentile Christians these burdens. And let's be honest again, (laughs) these are burdens, brothers and sisters. And so this is what we're getting into. This is what Paul is not happy about. Now, 
Make sense? We all good? We're all kind of together on this. This is kind of the simple context of why Paul is kind of, he needs to get to business and leading this community in a better way. They're abandoning the gospel. Now, surprising, I'm not good with sarcasm, but surprisingly, insert sarcasm, we haven't had anyone show up at Praxis Church recently and try and divide us by saying that we must follow Jewish customs. We just haven't, we haven't had to deal with this. There has been no circumcision booths at Praxis Church. Just ironically, that just hasn't happened, right? So we pick up this letter and we see the context and the division that's going on. And there should be some empathy, right? You even have an apostle Peter who's convinced, this guy who followed Jesus, that other people need to be circumcised to kind of come in to the church and follow Jesus. So you have this context going and there should be some empathy there because again, this whole thing started with Abraham in the sense of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So there, this is very new and they're wrestling through it. But if we're just honest, this is not our story. The Jewish stuff is not um, a threat to us. I don't think Paul would write us a letter and say, hey, you're abandoning the gospel because people want you to, you know, the kosher food and the Sabbath and the circumcision stuff. But I think where we need to kind of start, as kind of David got us going last week, is what is it for us? Right? Like what are the other what are the other gospels that are trying to come in and suck our attention and divide us? Now, I know for most of us right away, we think of the prosperity gospel. Um, That's probably for most of us the first thing that comes to mind. Um, because it's called the prosperity gospel, which is kind of another gospel. And I think certainly there, we're in a moment where the prosperity gospel, especially in the Western world, is alive and it is well, and you see all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, pros- prosperity gospel heavy is the preacher who convinces you you will be financially blessed if you give to their ministry. But honestly, for our context, I don't think prosperity gospel heavy is as much the threat as prosperity gospel light. And there is such a thing as prosperity gospel light. I just encourage you just to spend some time on Instagram, on the search wheel, looking kind of at the one minute pastor clips to see what I mean, you know, where everything is fashioned about me and my great life and what God is calling me to do. And not all of that is bad, but it's very easy for prosperity gospel light to kind of creep into our worldview. So I get, I get that, you know, some of us think through what the other gospels kind of could be for us. And that probably comes to the top. And I, again, I think that's a thing, but I actually think under it, if we're talking about our moment and some of the things that divide us and some of the things, let's be honest, that are preying on our moment of division, the world that we live in, there are other gospels. You know, there's the gospel that we must lean a certain way politically to be a Christian, right? I think Newbegin, uh, Leslie Leslie Newbegin in the middle of the 20th century was right when he was looking ahead and kind of looking at where the world was going and basically, you know, 60 years ago or whatever said that the new religion, the future religion would be politics. And this this is so relevant for our moment where it's easy 
to take a posture that you've got to lean a certain way or towards a certain political vision for the world for you to be a Christian. I see this unfolding all over the place. You've got to be tied, right? Not as maybe much in Canada, but certainly in North America, we see this push that I've got to lean a certain way in my politics to be, uh, you know, to be a true, real Christian. This gospel manifests itself in kind of progressive and conservative ideologies, these things are alive and well, brothers and sisters. You just go on Twitter and how there's these visions for the world and how somebody should live. And there's this connection to like a true, authentic, real Christian kind of leans this way in their view of the world or this way, progressive and conservative ideologies. Or what about this for us right now? What about the gospel of the pandemic, right? The, the division we've seen, right? And how this has kind of become the main thing in, in a lot of churches, the division around whether to shut down or to not, to obey the government or not, to get vaccinated or not, and so on. There's been this, like, the, the pandemic in and of itself has been a type of gospel that has tried to suck us in. My mind, honestly, guys, has just been blown. I'm a pretty peaceful person. Uh, I believe, yeah, I'm not, not very non-confrontational. My mind has been blown at just the opinions around the recent moment we've been in. Like people that will legit, I don't even know, email us about how we should be responding in particular ways to the pandemic and what we should be doing. And it's just fascinating that this has, this has taken over. This has become the gospel. Are you leaning left? Are you leaning right? Are you vaccinated? Are you not? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? What do you hold to? What about this? What about the gospel of the gospel of my amazing church, right? I noticed this creeping in and it's, it's sneaky. That instead of, again, the things that we talk about when we think of the good news of Jesus, the church becomes the gospel in the sense of like, come to my great church or, or be a part of my amazing church as though that's the good news. These things creep in little by little. And so what Paul's instructing here is that we hold on to the good gospel that he brought. The story of Jesus, of Jesus, of God putting on human flesh and coming to us. And guys, certainly we're not dealing right now with Judaizers. But I would just say in our moment, there's these little signposts around us, these little things that would try and drag us into to, to division. And I'm just I know if Paul was here, he would call us to keep our eyes and our lives and our community focused on the main thing. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is Lord. This is what this is all about. And we may have different ideas and even maybe differing ideologies, but for Paul and just the unity of what he's calling this community to become, there's something that goes way deeper and is so much better. And it's that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And so that's how we're going to start. That's how we're going to basically start this whole thing. Jesus is king. And if Paul were to remind this community a couple thousand years later not to veer from the gospel that he brought them, we lean into that same gospel. And so maybe for the next few moments as we reflect and as we take time, we would just be convicted around maybe us making things individually and sometimes even as a community, things that aren't the main thing, the main thing. A cam is here, is going to take a minute. He's going to throw up this song, King of Kings. And we're just going to close our time today, really kind of focusing and just reflecting on Jesus as King. And I love this song because the depths of this song 
really are the gospel, the work of Jesus. This is what Paul is calling the church to a couple thousand years ago. And I think he's calling us today into this, this coming back maybe for us to what the main thing is the good news of King Jesus. Let's uh, sing. If you want to sing with us, maybe reflect however you want to approach this, but this is how we're going to end our gathering today. There is no other gospel but the good news of Jesus as King. So let's sing together.